I would like to welcome Marianne Williamson, who is a best-selling author, political activist, entrepreneur, and spiritual thought leader. She is currently running for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. Um, something that's noteworthy is she had uh, founded Project Angel Food, which is an NGO that has delivered more than 16 million meals to ill and dying homebound patients since 1989. The group was created to help people suffering from the ravages of the HIV slash AIDS crisis. Um, that's not all of her work in kind of social issues. She's also worked throughout her career on poverty, anti-hunger, and racial reconciliation issues. And in 2004, she co-founded the Peace Alliance, and this supports the uh, creation of a U.S. Department of Peace, hopefully in the future. Um, so... I guess to begin, how do you feel like you can specifically tackle the uh, level of corporate interest, private interest, if you were able to be um, president? And just in general, how do you think politicians are actually able to to tackle the amount of corruption, the amount of um, you know just private interest in the political process? Well, first you have to get elected, and the same uh, corporate forces, which are institutionally resistant to any kind of effort to actually over, overturn the corporate apple cart that you, uh, that you confront when you're elected, you also confront as a candidate. And that's why when you are dealing with so many people thinking, oh, what's the difference anyway, then those people aren't joining your uh, campaign. Um, and so you don't even have a chance of getting in there to use the levers of power. I think a historical overview is very helpful. Certainly, uh, the abolitionists thought slavery was all locked up. And the women suffragists thought the institutional suppression of women and the early organizers thought that about the Gilded Age and the civil rights movement thought that about the, um, the segregationists. And to an extent, they were all correct, just like we are. We're just the latest iteration in a struggle that was with us at the very beginning. It's part of America's DNA between the powerful and the powerless, between the oligarchic and the and the uh, democratic. However, all of our ancestors who stood up in their time to face these challenges prevailed, but they had to persevere. They couldn't just give in. You know, we have to toughen up. We're a little soft generation. Um, and by generation, I mean all of us who are adults. I know it's disappointing. No one needs to tell me how disappointing it is. I'm in the middle of the of it right the second, I mean, literally. Um, and I know how corrupt it is, but I also know that it inconveniences them for us not to go away. That's the point. Um, if you walk away, they got you. Then, then they've got you, because that's really the game, to squash you down so that you'll go away and do as you're told, which creates an energy which in some personalities will turn into outright anger and hostility, and in other personalities will turn into depression and anxiety. And we've got to hold each upright, the other up right now. I think we have, as a culture, gotten used to maybe tending to our wounds a little too preciously. And that's all that this is, is the newest, you know, it's a collective wound. And I'm not minimizing the problem. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm live within its embodiment right now. And I have the scars to prove it. The daily, what you take to be it. So I, I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying that the only uh, alternative to showing up anyway is to give in. And that's exactly what they want us to do. Yeah, I think 
there's been quite a few theorists and philosophers they've talked about, especially kind of the uh, fascist and authoritarian um, kind of love of the use of fear in order to uh, kind of manipulate and placate the the population. Um, so I would definitely agree with that. I'm just thinking more in terms of like specific practical strategy, because I think even when we see, I could see this happening with like when Obama was elected, this promise of hope that even when we feel like we've elected somebody who's extremely, you know, uh, you know, they, they appear progressive, they appear uh, kind of for the people and not necessarily the kind of status quo of corporate interest. What are some practical things, if you were elected president, that you feel like you could implement in order to counteract the kind of corruption that you see? Well, okay, so there are two things there. Uh, the first is, a okay, let's go over to the second one, I think is the one you're most curious about, which is what would you do if you were there? The president does not have a magic wand. The president shouldn't have a magic wand. Uh, and there are three co-equal branches of government. The president gets to lay out a moral vision. That's what Franklin Roosevelt said. That's more important than the administrative aspect of the job. Um, no matter who you are, you don't know. Are you going to have your party in Congress? Are you going to have your party in the Senate? I will or I won't. No different than a, than a Joe Biden. And you work where you can. Uh, I have one opponent who's going on and on about how bipartisan he is, and he wants to have Republicans in his cabinet. That's his way. My way is I'd be tough. Joe Manchin messes with me, I'm on the plains of West Virginia. Kirsten Seminar, uh, Seminar messes with me, I say, girlfriend, let's talk about those hedge funds. I mean, I would be much more uh, Lyndon Johnson in that way than someone like an Obama always putting out the, you know, putting out the, you know, the, the friendship stick, even though every single time it will be bitten off, you know. Um, and then the president have, has uh, uh, executive orders. You don't go to Washington planning to govern by executive orders, but neither would I be, be hesitant to use them if they were necessary. Next thing is the president has the right to appoint not only cabinet secretaries, but the heads of all those agencies that have been so infiltrated with corporate influence. It's called corporate capture. And the president has the bully pulpit. I would be uh, laying it down bluntly and for real as a president as I do. And I also, you know, I only want to run for one term. First of all, because I don't think a, a baby boomer should be president in 2028. But even more than that, I don't want to, for even a moment, have to worry about, well, if you do this, insurance won't be happy, or pharmaceutical won't be happy, and but I'm not of that system. Uh, to me, being of that system is almost disqualifying for what we need at this moment. We need an economic turnaround, we need a break, uh, with a very aberrational chapter of American history, and we need somebody bold enough to claim it, to name it, and to do it. No, that's those are very good points. So, what I, if I understand correctly, it's this idea of um, just being more tough on corruption and people that you feel are absolutely. Uh, I would be yeah. have no question. I'm there for the people. I think that this has been a government. It's become a government of the corporations by the corporations for the corporations, and we need to make a very, very fundamental and serious effort to claim a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Um, now to kind of turn to, I, I mean, guess still on the topic of disillusionment, did, did some feeling of disillusionment 
or kind of maybe even frustration with the amount of corruption you see, was that what kind of motivated you to run or were there some other reasons why you decided to run both in 2020 and now? Because I guess there's different circumstances. I remember a time when America was different. I'm not whitewashing or romanticizing or glamorizing the past, but I do remind you that in the 1970s, which would sound probably to you like a far, far away fairy tale, uh, I was there, so I'm telling you, uh, I remember that time, and I remember the average couple could afford a house, and the average couple could afford a car, and the average couple could afford a yearly vacation, and one member of the couple could stay home, and one salary could support a family of four, and they could afford to send their kids to college. People had bandwidth. People had bandwidth. That's that. what I just described as a thriving middle class. You cannot have a thriving democracy where you do not have a thriving middle class. And I saw, I was, you know, I was front row. That's what my age group is. We were front row to the change. The change brought about by Reaganomics, the change, demonization of unions, um, exploitation of workers, job cutting, not job creating, job elimination, tax cuts for the very, very wealthy, corporate subsidies. And that caused that $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top one. Now, this is how I saw it from the filter of my life and career. I have had a 40-year career, 40-plus, and I worked a lot with people whose lives were in crisis because I got a lot of start of my career in the middle of the AIDS crisis. When I was starting, let's say in the 80s, yeah, I mean, shit happens. People go through horrible things. The test results come back. It's cancer. You're, someone you love died. Um, a child is on addicted to heroin. I mean, these things happen. However, there was a sense that people's uh, crises were the exception and not the rule. And it also felt in the country, there are crises, but that the crisis is the exception is not and not the rule. Over time, you began to see an America in which in so many people that you encountered, crisis was the rule and not the exception. The whole country Crisis is the rule and not the exception. It's always something. It's a crisis of our democracy. It's an environmental crisis. It's a homelessness crisis. Everything is a crisis because the way we govern the whole thing is a crisis. So uh, I began to realize two things. How many times around the year 2000, what I began to see is how many times people's constant crises were not just proverbial, you know, acts of God, they could happen to anyone, but they were result and they were the direct results of bad public policy. People didn't have health care. People couldn't work on just live on just one salary that, you know, somebody had to get more than one job. Sometimes both parents did and so forth. And I also saw that the system had no fundamental plan to uh, address that. I began to see, you know, like you were talking about people, younger people being disillusioned. Well, imagine being so disillusioned as I was and seeing that. You, 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 you people have no plan on to fix that because the current economic paradigm and that unholy alliance of government and cor uh, corporate power is predicated on the existence of a, of a permanent middle, uh, permanent underclass. So, yeah, I'm just not the kind of woman who is quiet about that kind of thing. I had, um, you know, I had spent so much of my career working with individual relationships and you walk away from toxic relationships. You walk away from abusive relationships. Well, I don't know how much more abusive relationship you can be in 
and with a government who enables toxins, uh, even carcinogens in your food. Now, I see you have a Canadian flag up there. Are you Canadian? Yes. Okay. So uh, look at a bottle of ketchup, the ingredient in a bottle of ketchup in Canada versus the ingredient in a bottle of ketchup in the United States. And, and all this happens all the time with Canada and Europe, where you guys are, you know, companies are forbidden to have certain carcinogens, certain toxins, et cetera. And we're not because the market rules no matter what. It's this fundamentalist free market capitalism that um, is in some ways killing us and is certainly destroying our democracy from within. I think that a lot of your, your points are reminiscent of uh, the kind of issues that like people in my generation are especially, um, I think, privy to because there is a sense of, especially after graduating high school or university, what do we do in this sort of job market kind of inheriting this, this economy that, you know, there's the pandemic, there's this, uh, as you mentioned, the huge wealth transfer um, that occurred. There's a lot of economic anxiety. And from my observations, one of the products of this during the, especially during the pandemic was um, the rise of this kind of like uh, young or rejuvenation of, of kind of more left-leaning progressive principles that was also seen in the, in Bernie's campaign. Um, and you have uh, talked and been on quite a few of these uh, like streamer shows, content creator shows of people that would represent the online left. So I'm kind of curious uh, how you would describe your experience engaging with leftist influencers and just online political spaces in general. Well, social media creates obviously very positive uh, modes of connectivity, conversation, and so forth. The, the positive is definitely there. However, I see in the American left today a tendency to think and act as though just talking about it is somehow achieving the change. At a certain point, you've collected the data. The era of the data collection is over. At a certain point, an endless analysis um, no longer serves. At a certain point, you have to get into the solution. That takes a level of courage that I, and spine that I don't see exhibited quite as much as I'd like. Now, obviously, I'm standing in a space where that makes sense because I'm standing in a place of saying, but here's a presidential candidate saying those things. Oh, I don't know. I just wish it wasn't her or whatever people. Uh, so the question is, well, are we interested in actually the attainment of power? That's what I'm not seeing on the left today. I'm not seeing, I, I'm seeing a lot of brand protection. A lot of, it's funny, for a supposedly anti-capitalist crowd, I see some of the worst shadows protecting one's brand, not wanting to upset your audience. Uh, your peeps might not like it if you say you like this candidate or not. I mean, it's really pretty fascinating. So disappointing. I mean, obviously, you know, people like Kyle Kalinske has been so wonderful to me. Uh, Crystal Ball, Brianna Joy Gray. I mean, I have some real heroes in all of the, that world. But I've seen... Um, wow. Wow. I've seen that there's a smug, self-righteous, 
unwillingness to get involved because it might cut into my audience um, on the left as much as anywhere in the private sector. Yeah, this is a, this is definitely a, a topic of interest for me because I've spent the last few months interviewing other people in the online left because I also felt like it was at least an open discussion to be had in terms of here's this movement that uh, has a lot of young people very much engaged in politics, but there is a sense of either audience capture or corporate capture or, or a concern with branding that kind of restricts any real direct action at times or direct engagement. Um, awesome. Yeah. Well, when you say, really, I think that's where you were going. People think they're involved in politics, but if all you're doing is talking about it, and you're not involved in the activism that actually leads to electoral change, you know, you can't, we cannot leave electoral politics out of a formulation for real change. Uh, I'm doing a Twitter Spaces tonight on Labor Revived. Labor is an extremely important outside. Um, but ultimately, it's it's the levers of power. It's who holds the levers of power. Uh, that's also going to make a difference. And the way that so much of the left these days has sort of turned away from that, like, oh, that's locked up with this almost pseudo sophisticated air, like we're too smart to get involved. I think it's so the opposite. Um, you're, you're so played uh, that you're not involved. So um, I think that's um, very disappointing because when I was growing up, the left had a real electoral spine. And even some of the people who are progressives in office, they play, a, you know, they talk a tough game on Twitter. But uh, they're towing the line with the DNC and the corporatists when it comes to this election. And I suppose that the promise is that maybe if they're good boys and girls, uh, they can run in 28. Well, God help us if Trump gets in, because we'll see how well 28 unfolds. Yeah, one of the criticisms of the like against the Democratic Party that you do see on the online left is that the the Democrats are kind of an example of why there's a failure of electoral politics in the sense that they're mostly using the boogeyman of of Trump to kind of as as enough of a reason for for people to kind of mobilize and vote, and they don't feel like uh, the Democrats have shown like a sufficient level of change or progress in terms of what they've done so far um this is like uh i'm not I, i'm 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 a bit more uh, informed in terms of canadian politics so i'm i'm genuinely curious um what your thoughts are with regards to to that critique this isn't uh I, I i i don't know where i'd stand honestly with this well you're right biden's message seems to be be afraid be very very afraid that's not going to inspire people to go to the polls our biggest electoral danger, the risk here, is not people voting for Trump. It's people staying home. People who are going to vote for Trump are going to vote for Trump. Don't try to change their mind right now. It's giving people something to vote for. My agenda, economic bill of rights, universal health care, tuition-free college and tech school, complete removal of the college loan debt, transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. Uh, guaranteed uh, uh, paid family leave, subsidized childcare, Guaranteed access to affordable housing, guaranteed living wage, a, a, a ending America's drug war, waging peace. There is a candidacy here that is standing for the kinds of things that 
inspire us to think, wow, we can just start over. We can just cut the cord with that entire neoliberal chapter and start over. And yet the, the, the system does so much to erase and to invisibilize this candidacy for that reason. And yet uh, I see how many people on the left um, almost this irrational um, well, if, if you see if you see a candidate, I mean that's how I look at it. If I see a candidate who expresses my uh, my views and what I want for the country, um, that's where I direct my attention. And we have one. you know, uh, someone was emailing me the other night, there are all these environmental organizations here in the United States that have endorsed Biden. Biden has given more oil drilling permits than even Trump did. Plus he okayed the Willow Project and the LNG Project in Alaska. So some to endorse Biden, even though he calls himself the climate president, his healthy investments in green energy and the Inflation Reduction Act, their benefits are completely nullified by all the investments in dirty energy. So when you ask some of these, these organizations, how could you endorse Biden? They will say things like, well, we don't have anyone else. Well, as the woman who's standing here, oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And you don't want to give up the fact that you know, you have that little bit of power with the mid-management level in the White House and they'll call you back and they'll schmooze you. And you're so unsophisticated, you don't realize they're schmoozing you instead of aligning with you in policy. And you might get a, a you know, a Christmas card or, you know, invited to a White House reception. These people are so easily. I remember Barbara Ehrenreich wrote an article years ago. I think it was when Clinton was president. She said, what has happened to the left? What has happened to us? And you know what she said, what had happened to us? She said, all of us have been invited to the White House at least once. So easily played. And then, you know, as it relates to my campaign, they can smear and mischaracterize and do what they do to make a candidate almost radioactive so that someone is almost embarrassed to say, well, actually, I think she would be good. Um, and then it's going back to brand protection. So um, everybody's got to think for themselves about what's going on here, I think. Yeah. Do you think, because um, <clears throat> like this is a more, this is a micro example, but uh, I'm originally from the province of Alberta, which is very oil rich. And then we had elected a more kind of progressive uh, premier, Rachel Notley under the new democratic party this was years ago and initially she introduced a lot of very like progressive reformations and her platform was quite progressive at least from my observations it seemed fairly earnest but after a while i uh, quite a few people talked about like the only way to kind of maintain any sort of political power in like this province like in alberta is to you have to kind of do your uh, kind of service to the oil industry, no matter what. And it kind of, that was like a bit of like an awakening thing for me because she did end up like cozying up to uh, oil companies quite a bit more. 
and I'm, it made me think of like, you know, it's maybe not an individual issue. Maybe it's just people, whether how earnest they are, whenever they get into these positions of power, there's these larger kind of forces that are kind of uh, systemically at play. If you were able to kind of redesign the system, um, how do you think that this uh, could be prevented, especially in like electoral politics? Because I think this is the crux of the issue for a lot of uh, left-leaning people is that it's just regardless of even voting somebody in who's quite like earnest and they genuinely don't want corruption, it's too large of like a um, system to kind of like overthrow just based off of like ambition and and rebellion. It, it, it Like there has to be kind of large, there has to be, at least in, in my uh, mind, there has to be like, it has to be attacked at multiple levels and in multiple different ways, like at the ballot box, but also through organization, um, through activism. Um, I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are with that. Well, yes, but even when you say it also has to be attacked with activism, but then you look at some of the organizations all of us have given money to for these very purposes, and they end up endorsing the people who are willing to go along. That's what's happening with the environmental movement and the climate in the United States right now. Um, the president is not you know, an autocrat. The president does not, like I said, have a magic wand. So none of the things, including climate or anything else, can you expect any one president to go in and make the entire change? But look at the corporatist democratic playbook. So the corporate, the corporatist, which is the entire Republican party is to just say climate change is a hoax on the, uh, in the, I call it the Obama Biden playbook. You pretend to care. And so you'll do things like the green investments, but this classic purse thief technique, don't look at the fact that on the other hand, you are falling in line. All of them now, Democrat and Republican, fall in line uh, with the oil companies and with the defense industry. So oh, we need a president. And am I saying this is going to fix everything? Like you said, it's got to be a multiple approach. We've got a multidimensional breakdown and we need a multidimensional response. But don't leave out the importance of a president who would get up there and say it. Now, I want to tell you a story. When Franklin Roosevelt realized the United States was going to have to enter World War II, he didn't have, we hardly had anything in terms of an army and Britain had nothing. So he knew he needed a certain amount of ships, tanks and planes. So he called really the same big three that, you know, the industrial Midwest and the United States into the office. And he said, gentlemen, I need this many ships, I need this many tanks, I need this many planes. And they all said to him, thank you, President Roosevelt, we are patriotic Americans, and when we have sold our quotas of cars, we will give you your tanks and your planes and your ships. And his response was so iconic. He said, gentlemen, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. I need this many ships, and I need this many tanks, and I need this many planes, and you will not sell another car until I get them. In other words, there is such a thing as an emergency. And during a time of emergency, the president has the power to override temporarily otherwise uh, uh, dominant uh, market principles. And that's why it just might be necessary at this point to, um, uh, to, uh, to uh, declare a climate emergency. Right now, the US government is corporate America's bitch. That's really how it, how it works. It is a system of legalized bribery. And within that system, that's just accepted. Well, it's not going to be that way when I'm there. And that doesn't mean I'd win every fight. And uh, I would certainly, you know, Roosevelt knew 
these companies are going to demand profit. Ultimately, you're going to have to partner with them. And I hope to have very persuasive power. First of all, these companies know what they're doing. They know the damage they've caused. They've known it for decades. And they also know the change is coming. They just want to squeeze every last dollar. And I would use all my persuasive powers to the best of my ability to say, let's skip over right now. You, We can create this just transition because a lot of the uh, a lot of the technological power, research power, manufacturing, and production, it's a lateral move. You're putting it right now to the creation of dirty energy. Help me, let's create clean energy, and we'll do this together. But if we do, if you don't want to do it with me, I'm going to demand that we do it because I am the president, not you. And that really is the essential question: Does a president of the United States advocating for the people have to kowtow? to these huge economic tyrants? I, I don't think so. And uh, when I'm president, if I'm president, it will not be that way. Yeah, I think I think going back to just like, a, especially my generation, that's probably one of the largest issues tied with economic anxiety is the environmental crisis. Um, I guess- And the economic you know, anxiety yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. makes all the sense in the world. Why should you live your life at the effect of bad economic ideas left over from the 20th century, starting with the college loan debt, the housing crisis, lack of health care? My, you know, public policy should set our young up to win, not cut them off at their knees. And yet that's what public policy does today, because those people are not yet old enough to serve the system. It picks a few because it needs it to run it. And the rest are just cast into the to the underworld of little more than economic serfdom. And I understand why young people are upset about it. But don't let your anger turn into turn, make you useless. And don't let your anger make you so cynical that it's a, just a negative dive. We've got to pull each other up. If we just go down, then you're just a tool of Donald Trump and I don't know how much more time you have, but uh, going off of that, um, just kind of maybe maybe like a final question. What would you ask for, um, I guess, young people in general, but also uh, just because of the demographic of those kind of like left leaning like influencers that you've contacted, they themselves are quite young and then their audience is quite young. What sort of advice uh, do you have for them or what would you like to see, especially in these online spaces? Um, in order to fulfill the sort of needs that you have for America in terms of kind of instilling more hope, more direct action, um, especially in the case of the economic anxiety and climate crisis we talked about. If it's, listen, it's really simple. If my agenda is the progressive agenda that you wish to see effectuated, help me. Go to Marianne2024.com, uh, look at the issues section, uh, suggest to your listeners that they check it out and that if they like it, that they volunteer and or donate, you know, a $3, a $5 doesn't have to be, you know, a lot of young people don't have the money uh, to do any like serious big time financial giving to political campaigns, but a progressive campaign like mine doesn't run on those anyway. But this idea that we're having all these conversations and over here are progressives running and yeah, maybe, no, you have to get involved and you have to get involved on the primary level. 
with both congressional and senatorial and uh, presidential campaigns. Otherwise, um, we will be articulate spectators to the decline of American civilization and little more. Um, all right. Well, if you have any any kind of final statements that you would uh, like to to wrap up the interview, uh, that yeah. would be appreciated. The uh, the New Hampshire primary uh, begins uh, it, the primary uh, electoral season. That, that's January twenty third, and I hope people will awaken to how important this is. Uh, it's it, once again, you know, who who is the Democratic nomination nominee is not the be all and end all of planning societal change, but leaving it out makes no sense whatsoever. It uh, is an important element if we're going to turn this ship around. And I, in, in my four years, you know, we're headed for the iceberg. In my four years in the White House, I could not turn around the ship entirely, but I could get us around the curve. Then you hand it over to a younger generation. But we cannot wait. We cannot wait. There is an urgency now. If we're going to do it, we need to do it right now. Thank you very much, Marianne Williamson. Um, yeah. I will link all of your information in thank the you. description. Yeah, thank you for the thank you time so you took to come on. Okay. Thank you. Bye -bye.